0: Hey, here's a question, okay? This is a fill-in-the-blank. Jesus is the answer to what? All our problems? Everything. The challenge is sometimes I don't know that we believe that. I don't know if we believe that our worship services are all about Jesus. You know what they say. They say if you have three Baptists in a room, you have four opinions. You know what that means? It means we fight for our own things. And they may not have anything to do about Jesus. So here's, here's the challenge for you this morning, okay? Um, I know that there are all kinds of challenges, problems, and things that you have to deal with, okay? There's a word for that. It's called life, okay? We all have life to deal with. And you can either focus on your problems in manufacturing solutions to it, or you can focus on your Lord. And that might not change you. it might not change your problems one way, but it gives you a center and a focus for the direction that you're heading in. Over the last several weeks, we've been um, continuing in a sermon series called Four Crucial Questions. And we have seen as Jesus kind of enters into Jerusalem for his last week before he's crucified that there are all kinds of questions that the religious leaders have for Jesus. They are trying to trick him, to trap him, to wear him down, to get him to say something inappropriate, to make him angry, to see if he'll say something that is a misstatement or some way to kind of catch him in something that he says. So they've asked him all kinds of questions about taxes, about uh, the resurrection and marriage and Uh, Questions about which of all of the commandments are the most significant? Well, this week for our fourth and final question, Jesus himself gets to ask the religious leaders a question. They have their tail between their legs and they are running to hide behind mama's skirt. And Jesus says, hey, before you go, I've got one question, just one. You've peppered me with questions, but I have just one for you. Listen to what it says in Matthew chapter 22, verses 41 through 46. It says, While the Pharisees were together, Jesus questioned them. Hey guys, I I, I need your opinion. What do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? David's, they told him. Jesus asked them, How is it then that David, inspired by the Spirit, calls him Lord? The Lord declared to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If David calls him Lord, how then can the Messiah be his son? And no one was able to answer him at all. And from that day, no one dared to question him anymore. The fourth of four questions. The first three have certainly raised our interest. We'd love to hear Jesus' political commentary on how church and state supposed to work out. We're intrigued by the question about whose wife will this person be who was married to seven brothers that successively died. What happens in the resurrection? Of all of the mass of commandments and injunctions that the scripture puts upon us, which one is the most important? And yet when we get to Jesus' own question to the religious leaders, we go, wow, what a letdown. We figured Jesus could have asked a better question than this. It seems to be the the least interesting question of all four of the questions that are asked. And I wonder here, just casually, okay, if um, we had a little tape recorder or a little recording device that floated behind you all week long and recorded everything that you talked about, certainly when we replay that and we analyze that, we would figure out what impresses you, what matters to you. And so you may, you know, speak about the size of your 401k or the new features in your brand new shiny car, or how successful your kids are and how much that your honor roll kid could beat up my honor roll kid, Um, how fast you can cut the lawn with your new zero turn lawnmower, what is the latest fiction novel that you just can't happen to put down, maybe even something that's not quite so self-centered, an objective question about taxes, resurrection, or commands, and yet when Jesus has the opportunity to ask a question, it is all about his identity, who is the Messiah? There are a lot of things that you could talk about, but there are also a lot of things that you could talk about that don't matter. And so to prepare our hearts for receiving the Lord's Supper, there has to be some tacit way in which we say, this has got to be about Jesus. Because even when he has the opportunity to say, hey, y'all had three questions, give me just one. Who's the Messiah? What do you know about him? They had peppered him with all kinds of questions about duties. What do we do about politics? What do we do about the resurrection? What do we do when it comes to commands? Jesus, for the moment, is not concerned about duties. He's concerned about identity. And here's the thing that's really interesting. In Jesus' one question, he really, in one sense, answers every question they could possibly have. Who is the Messiah? Because if you get that question right, I love the way Tiffany said it about Cecily. There are all kinds of things you could pray for for your kids, but if she has a relationship with Jesus, it doesn't mean that everything's going to be a bed of roses and it's going to work out, but that is the most fundamental uh, question that we can ask. And so if they would recognize him as Messiah, if they would recognize his identity, it would help them with all of the other questions that they have. And that danger is present for us too. Because we can focus on the trees and lose the forest. Oh, got to pay the bills this week. Got to get my car fixed. Got to do this. Got to go to the doctor. And then our allegiance and love for God gets drowned out because we're paying attention to the details of life and not paying attention to the author of life. Here's what is um, interesting to me. If you have a red letter version translation and you look at chapter 23 just quickly, with the exception of some narrative comment in verse 1, all of chapter 23 is red. If you look at chapter 24, with the exception of the first four verses, that is some narrative insight, all of chapter 24 is red letters. All of chapter 25 is red letters. 26, Jesus is killed. So this is the last time that Jesus is having a dialogue with the religious leaders. And what is he doing? He's being very tactful, he's being very careful. He's not trying to win a debate and go, hey, my my one question is better than your three questions. No, this is not a competition. He is trying to open their hearts to what the scriptures say about who he is. And with his last breath, he is still offering his opponents an opportunity to believe in him. This is the last conversation that they will have before Jesus stands before them in trial. And his last words are, guys, your own scriptures what do they say about who the Messiah is? He's David's son. Jesus says, there's more to it than that. And so he asks for their opinion. Hey, you guys are the religious leaders, and you, know what? You're all, you all happen to be right here. Isn't that convenient? Let me ask you a question. The Messiah, whose son is he? The idea is that if you know the family, you know something about the son, even if you don't know him personally. Oh yeah, that's so-and-so's boy. He might not know everything about him, but you know Things about his lineage and his heritage. You know things about his upbringing and you know the son by knowing the family. And the basis for this really comes from 2 Samuel chapter 7. David desired to build a temple for the Lord, but he was a man of bloodshed. And so God promised that there would be um, a descendant that comes to David that would rule eternally. Now, the problem is we know that the nation of Israel ceased to exist. It was obliterated from the face of the planet. They were taken away into captivity by the Babylonians, by the Assyrians. And so who is this forever reigning descendant of David? It is referred to as the son of David. So when we look at what Jesus is trying to communicate, there's three very simple things. And the first is that the Messiah is David's son. The Jewish leaders get this. Whose son is the Messiah? David's, the Messiah is David's son. The problem is that does not go far enough. And so Jesus says, you guys are the experts here. Let's talk about this David's son character. And hey, can you, can you answer me a second question that goes a little bit deeper? Because I have, a, I have a question about Psalm 110, verse 1. That's basically what he does. He says, you've answered correctly, but how can David's son also be David's Lord. And so he asks the question, how is it then that David, inspired by the Spirit, calls him Lord? For the Lord declared to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. For those of you who teach the Bible or just are lovers of uh, Bible teaching or Bible facts, here's, here's something for you to note. Psalm 110, verse 1, that verse that is referenced here in this passage is the most quoted Old Testament passage uh, Old Testament verse in the entire New Testament. So think through whatever your favorite passages in the Old Testament. Jeremiah 29, 11, You know, Ezekiel 37. No, nobody has a favorite verse in Ezekiel 37. But my point is, whatever your favorite verse is, this is the most quoted verse in all of the New Testament. And so it becomes the basis for Peter's Pentecost sermon. He says, this guy that you crucified, God has raised him for the dead. And then he quotes this. He declared to my Lord, sit at my right hand and I'll put your enemies under your your feet. Therefore, it's obligatory for all of you to repent, to believe, to trust in the Lord. It's interesting here because we find out something very specific about what Jesus believes about the Bible. He he believes two things that we see here. He says in verse 42, he he asks them, how then is it that David... Inspired by the Spirit, calls him Lord. Number one, Jesus believed in Davidic authorship. Number two, he believed in Holy Spirit inspiration. Now both of these things become very important because there are very educated people out there with lots of degrees uh, behind their name and lots of books on a bookshelf who will tell you that we cannot at face value trust what the Bible claims. So Psalm 110 claims to be written by David, but we know David didn't write it. There was some ghost writer who lived years after David who wrote it as a memorial poem about David. Claimed to be from David, but not. What does Jesus believe about who wrote Psalm 110? How is it that David said... So when we hear things about Moses wrote the first five books of the Old Testament... Or we hear that Jesus says, just like Jonah was three days in the belly of the whale, so will the Son of Man be three days in the belly of the earth. He draws a direct analogy between his crucifixion and resurrection and the time that intercedes between them, with the story of Jonah. Those, Those stories that are hardest for us to believe, yet Jesus believes them fully. He says, this is exactly how it is. And so here's the thing. You don't need Bart Ehrman at UNC who despises the scripture to tell you that everything that's in the bible isn't in the bible if you can reckon what jesus's opinion is on the scripture whose opinion would you rather go with bart ehrman's or the lord jesus christ as for me if this is what jesus believed that the person who says that they wrote the bible wrote the bible and that the holy spirit inspired it that is going to be where i stand when it comes to what i believe about the scriptures Because there is not a higher authority than we can go to than the Lord Jesus Christ himself to tell us what he thinks about the truthfulness of scripture. That's a side point, but friends, that's a really important one. Because if there's a more authoritative source for us to get our teaching and preaching from, then we need to go to that. And we need to stop messing around with the Bible. But if the Bible truly is the word of God, written by men but inspired by the spirit, then there is no other source that we can go to for instruction from God's Word. So Jesus, in one sense, commends them for getting their Old Testament history right. Yes, the Messiah is David's son. Everybody knows that. That's almost what Jesus is saying. He goes, Now, there's a twofold problem. There's a problem, and it comes from this passage, Psalm 110, verse 1. The first is this both David and God refer to this mysterious second person as Lord. How is it that David, inspired by the Spirit, calls his son Lord? And how is it that the Lord declared to my Lord? There's a problem. You have two people, God himself and David himself, referring to this son as a Lord. If the Messiah is Lord, then he's not merely David's son. And how can a son be Lord of a father? This is a really interesting question. Because even in American politics, we see this. John Adams had the rare privilege of witnessing his son become a president of the United States as well. John Adams and John Quincy Adams. Fast forward to our day and age, George H.W. Bush had the rare privilege of seeing his son, George W. Bush, succeed him in the office of being president of the United States. Well, George H.W. Bush may refer to his son as mr president or with some other honorific title we don't believe that the son is greater than the father because the son wouldn't be who he was if it wasn't raised in the family that he was and so what is going on here how is david referring to another person as lord this is not an honorific title given to solomon because the end of solomon's life is far worse than the beginning he apostatizes, he falls away from faithfulness to the Lord. So what is this that is going on here? What we can say is this, that from David's perspective, the Messiah is not only his son, the Messiah is David's Lord. Verse 44 is the quotation specifically from Psalm 110.1. And if you could go back in your Bible to Psalm one ten one, you would probably notice, depending on your translation of Scripture, that the first Lord is capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, all caps Lord, and the second Lord is capital L, lowercase o-r-d. The Hebrew for that is Yahweh says to Adonai, very clearly, two different titles, referring to two different people. And Yahweh, God's personal name, is referring to this second person as Lord. It cannot be merely an honorific title for a human ruler. There is something more That is happening here. And we have to ask this question. If Yahweh calls a person Adonai. Isn't this a violation of the very first commandment? You shall have no other gods before me. This is a problem. And Jesus is trying to hone in on his own identity. Not by saying hey guys this is about me. He's trying to say look at your own scriptures. David says this. What do you do with it? Who is this guy? And instead of professing their ignorance or giving Jesus any credit, they just decide to keep their hands over their mouth and not say anything at all. In addition to this mysterious person being referred to both by David and by Yahweh as the Lord, there is another problem, that the Lord gives this person exalted privileges. Did you see what it says? The Lord, Yahweh, says to Adonai, sit at my right hand. He doesn't say, rule over me. He doesn't say, be underneath me. He says, sit by me. and enjoy my dignity, my prerogatives, my privileges, participate in my honor and in my rule. This sounds like a violation of Isaiah 42.8. Isaiah 42.8 says that God zealously guards his glory and will not give his glory to another. Yet here, Psalm 110 verse 1, Yahweh seems to be giving his glory to someone else. Because this the messiah is not only in david's ancestry one of his sons the messiah is not just a person who possesses the honorific title of lord it becomes much more complete when we look at this to see that the messiah is david's god what i love about this is again with jesus's last conversation with the religious leaders He is trying to get them to wrestle with their own scriptures to examine whether he himself, Jesus, would have been able to do the things that he had done if he was not indeed David's son, David's Lord, indeed David's God. And it's at this point that we see that there is a huge difference in perspective between the way God viewed his son and the way men viewed his son. Because men, for our part, killed him. God, for his part, enthroned him. And even here, the religious leaders might be silenced, but they're not convinced. They might be humiliated, but they're not humbled. They might be impressed, but they walk away unbelieving because the teacher who never went to the right schools confounds them with one question about one verse of Scripture that pushed people to the identity of who Jesus is. So this morning, before we can take the Lord's Supper, every person here must in their heart of hearts, in the deepest recesses of their minds, answer the question, who is Jesus? Is he a fable, a myth? Is your religiosity simply an issue of perpetuating grandma having drug you to church 40 years ago? And you just don't have the courage to not show up anymore because people will talk about you. You don't believe, so you're going to go along with the party line just to keep people from talking about you. Friend, the issue is if we don't wrestle with the issue of who Jesus is and know in our heart of hearts that he is who he claims to be, then this whole show is for nothing. It's for nothing. Your worship attendance might get you a perfect attendance pin, but it doesn't affect your standing with the creator of the universe. Your participation in the Lord's Supper, far from being a blessing, is leading to your own cursing because you're taking it not in faith. You're not testifying to the truths of the sacrifice that Jesus has made, his glorious resurrection, the hope that we have for the future. And for us, we we cannot be reductionistic in our view of who Christ is because there are one of two images that are the predominant images that come to your mind when you think about who the Lord Jesus Christ is you think of him as a cute and cuddly little baby in a manger or a tragic corpse hanging upon a cross and yet this passage this question that jesus says says there <laughs> both of those are in the past who is jesus now he's not a cute and cuddly baby and he's not a corpse perpetually hanging on a cross he is the ruling and reigning king of everything he reigns and he rules and if we have truly seen him We cannot worship him without reverence. We cannot take this supper without considering the substance to which it refers to. His death, his sinless life, his atoning sacrifice, his glorious resurrection and ability to give life to all who have forsaken their sin and cast their all upon him. And so out of reverence for Christ... We not only baptize people in that name, we don't baptize people in the name of Northside Baptist Church. We don't baptize people in the name of the Universal Church. We baptize people in the name of the Son. But We also show reference to Jesus by obeying Him in observing this meal that celebrates His sacrifice. Our deacons are to come at this moment to assist us in serving this supper.